0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This podcast contains explicit language. Hey, everyone, and welcome to So That Happened, HuffPost's weekly wade through the Washington swamp, draining TBA. I'm Zach Young. You may remember me from such So That Happened episodes as last week's Politicon panel show. Uh, Your regular host, Arthur Delaney, is on a relaxing beach vacation this week. So I'll be turning the mics over to a couple of highly qualified individuals, HuffPost reporters Jeff Young and Sam Levine. First, they're going to be joined by our editor-in-chief, Lydia Polgreen, to talk about the HuffPost Listen to America bus tour. Starting in September, a whole bunch of HuffPost reporters are going to be touring the country on a bus, starting in St. Louis, then heading through the south up to the Midwest, over to Montana, down to Arizona, and finally back east to New Orleans. They're going to be collecting interesting stories along the way. They'll have a mobile video studio. It's going to be a fascinating project, and Lydia is here to tell us all about it. Then, Sarah Collins of the Commonwealth Fund will talk with Jeff about why, in the midst of repeated attempts to repeal Obamacare, more and more Democrats are talking seriously about single-payer as an alternative to the present health care system. Finally, Sam and Jeff will talk to Justin Levitt from Loyola Law School about the Department of Justice's changing approach to voting rights in the Trump era. Stick around.
2: I'm Jeffrey Young. I'm here with my colleague, Sam Levine, and uh, making her So That Happened debut is HuffPost Editor-in-Chief Lydia Polgreen. Lydia, thank you very much for making some time.
3: It's so great to be here.
2: We're doing uh, this segment of the the, uh, podcast this week from New York, which, if you're not familiar, is a city located about 100 miles north of Philadelphia. What I wanted to talk about is uh, a pretty exciting uh, uh, initiative we have that's going to be rolling out. Pretty soon. It's our Listen to America bus tour. It's the road trip. Um, HuffPost is going to be traveling to 23 cities.
3: That is correct.
2: Starting in St. Louis on the 12th of September and then winding its way around the continental United States until landing in New Orleans on October 27th. That's exactly right. Great. So tell us what what this is about, what inspired it, uh, and what you hope we will get out of it as a news organization, um, and what, and also what you're hoping that the people that we encounter while we're on the road will get out of it.
3: Yeah, um, this is one of the most exciting things um, that we're doing right now, and it's really a unique project. Um, it really grows out of um, my sense uh, as I've, you know, joined HuffPost that we do. There's been a real collapse in the media, um, particularly in local journalism. Um, since you know 1990, 250,000 jobs have disappeared in journalism. Most of those have been in local journalism. So you know, I worked at papers like the Albany Times Union up in upstate New York or the Orlando Sentinel in Central Florida, and um, you know there are countless newsrooms like them that are shadows of their former selves. Cities that used to have two newspapers that competed against each other are lucky if they still have one, um, and. And um, it, with this collapse of, of, of local journalism, I think we've seen a, a kind of fraying of trust in journalism because the farther away something is from you, the harder it is to trust you. It would be very hard for Donald Trump to call journalists the uh, enemy of the American people if uh, you knew journalists from covering your high school football games or your city council meetings. That was one of my jobs when in my early days as a newspaper reporter was showing up at school board meetings and, and, and city council meetings. Um so it seemed to me like there was a real opportunity for us to um, get out there and work with local news organizations across the country and listen and learn and talk to folks about what are the things that they're thinking about? What are the big issues on people's minds? Um, and I think one of the things we're really listening closely for is – or, or – or ideas about American identity and who we are as a country. Um, I think a lot of folks are hearing the language that's coming out of the White House right now, and it sounds a little unfamiliar. Um, you know, uh Restricting who gets to vote, um, restricting immigration. We're a nation of immigrants. My my uh, my mother is African, and my father is from Minnesota. Um, you know, most of us at some point trace our our, our heritage back to immigrants. So, um, asking questions and listening to people about their feelings about um, about these fundamental issues about American identity um, is really the heart of what this is about. We're going to be going into um, you know medium-sized cities across the country. We didn't want to go to the big uh, regional capitals like Chicago or Atlanta. So instead, we're going to places like Birmingham and Akron, Ohio. We're going to go to Oxford, Mississippi. Um, and at each stop along the way, we're going to work with a local journalism organization to do a piece of signature journalism Um we're going to have events, um, you know. In one place, we're doing an event at a school for the deaf. Um, at another, uh, you know, we're going to have a um, conversation about Confederate monuments. That should be pretty interesting. Oh, wow. um, we have a bunch of different things in the pipeline. I don't want to get into too many details, but because um, some of them are still evolving, but um, I think it's going to be some really interesting and challenging conversations about who we are as a country.
2: And so, so uh, how? Like, what's the what's this the sales pitch so to speak specifically to somebody who lives in one of these communities maybe they hear on the radio or in whatever local uh, media partners hey this thing is going on and they're wondering why should i show up
3: well i think that if you feel that your story isn't being told, then come and tell it to us. Um, We're going to have the uh, tour bus set up as a uh, kind of mobile studio. Um, So kind of like how Alan Lomax went all around the South um, recording the blues, we're going to go out and we're going to talk to people about their concerns, the things that they care about. Um, And my hope is is that that's going to help us set our agenda for what kind of stories we're going to be covering um, in the years ahead. So this, for me, is a really great opportunity to get out of – out of our, uh, of the places where we all live and go into some, some different places and hear about the concerns that might not necessarily be right in front of our, uh, our faces. Now it's interesting because for a lot of our staffers, this is actually uh, a chance to go back to the place that they're from mm-hmm. and do some journalism there. Um, so, you know, for example, Paige Lavender, your colleague um, in DC, um, is, uh, you know, originally from uh, West Virginia. So she's going to be going down with us to the, on the West Virginia stop and we're going to be talking to a, a big group. Group there, um, um, on the opioid crisis, and so uh, you know we're going to pair her with uh, Jason Turkis, a reporter who's who's been covering this question, um, and also. Page will be there uh, to um, to really kind of represent the the hometown, um, and so we're we're going to be trying to make those connections and get people to come out and talk about the issues that really matter to them.
2: And this is you know, and this th- this will be an advantage for for us, and I think this is probably true of most of the big news organizations. In that, what gets lost in all this talk about bubbles and coasts is that people come from all over the place. Yeah, it's, it,
3: it's it's funny. I you know, people always say like, oh, those journalists are coastal elites. I always say the reason that journalists live in big cities is because that's where the jobs are. Are. I mean, it's the same reason that anyone else does. I mean, does anyone ask investment bankers why they don't live in Appalachia? You know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one of them should should you know, buy the whole Appalachian range and right. fix it up for people. <laughs> Lydia, um,
4: go ahead. can say. I jump in for a second? I think uh, one criticism you heard a lot during the campaign about the media in general was this idea of parachuting into an area to cover something. Um, and I'm sure that to criticism, we'll hear about this tour. That's something you've already totally. heard. How do you think this is structured and, and how will this be different than, than any kind of parachuting reporting?
3: Well, I think one of the crucial differences is that rather than just going in alone, we're working with journalists in these communities. Um, so we're not coming in and saying we think we have an idea of like what an important story is in this place and we're just going to do it. Um, we're going to actually partner with. Um, all kinds of news organizations. Some of them digital, some of them are a broadcast, um, some are, are print. Um, in all the places that we're going, some of them are long form, some of them are you know they're 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 from all all different kinds of, of journalism. So the idea is for us to really work closely with them um, and co-produce a piece of journalism that we think really speaks to the needs of the audience in that place. Um, and I think this could also. One of my big hopes of what's going to come out of this is that we'll have a sense of where are the places where we should be putting journalists, where are the the most important and interesting stories unfolding in the country, so that um, you know we could um, send Jeff or Sam or or any you know, you want to go open the Akron bureau? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe
2: I, I want to ask two two more questions about this, um, and I'll, I'll do that in in uh, uh, descending order of importance. Uh, the first is. Is there going to be swag? Are we going to have t-shirts and stuff? Because I mean, you know, balloons. There is definitely kind of thing. going to be
3: swag. Um, there's going to be all kinds Great. of swag. So absolutely come out for it. Right.
2: That that that's good news. I was afraid you were going to say no. And the other thing is, uh, if people who are listening right now want to find out more about where we're going to be and when and what's going to be there, both right now and as the beginning of the tour starts on the September twelfth where should they go to, to look that up?
3: They should come to HuffPost.com. They should download our app. Uh, we have uh, You can find the Listen to America link right on our homepage and in our app. Um, you know, you can find us on Facebook, um, and uh, there's loads of information about the stops that we're going to be making, the places that, that uh, you know, when we're going to be in places, and what kind of events we're going to have um, once we're there. So we definitely want people to come out. We want people to come out and tell their stories. This is not just about us talking to you. It's about you talking to us. And um, you know I'm going to be out um, on a number of stops of the tour. So I'm really looking forward to some places that I've never been. For example, so I'm from Minnesota and I'm a Midwesterner, but somehow I've never been to Kansas City. So um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And then our last stop is going to be in New Orleans and um, – I thought it was going to be my first trip to New Orleans, but then I realized that the National Association of Black Journalists Conference is in New Orleans. So I'm actually going there this week. (laughs) So I'll at least get to suss out the great spots. Um, But um, definitely um, let me know. Um, You can find me on Twitter at at @l_polgreen, or you can email me at Lydia at HuffPost.com if there's a spot along the way. Uh, for example, a great place to eat, um, you know, a really terrific uh, uh, beer or cocktail I should try, um, a very cool attract, off-the-beaten-path attraction. Um, while we're on this trip, I'd love to hear about them. Um, I'm I'm I've been a traveler all my life. I love discovering um and um and seeing new things. So um please feel free to write to me with your suggestions.
4: You can cc me and Jeff on the food and drink recommendations, <laughs> yeah, <that's> right? <laughs> um,
3: oh, and we also have a an email address for the uh, for the tour itself. It's um it's it's com. So uh, if you're if you're feeling shy about writing directly to me, you can also write to the listen address.
2: I I'm just speaking for myself, really interested to see how all of this, what all this turns into by the time we get back, you know, by the time this is over, you and me both. we're back in New York, and we've sort of gathered up everything that we, we've gathered and, and see where it goes from there. Um, and with that, uh, Lydia, uh, thanks again for sitting down with us to talk about this. Um, and we will be back.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is
2: Jeffrey Young. Um, I'm joined today not only by my colleague, Sam Levine, but also, and more importantly, we have Sarah Collins. Uh, Sarah Collins is an economist and the vice president for the Healthcare coverage and access program at the Commonwealth Fund, which is a 99-year-old New York-based foundation focused on healthcare policy research. Thank you very much for coming in.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: So it may seem, we're, we're going to talk about single-payer healthcare today, or universal health care, or Medicare for all, or there are a lot of different names for some some things that are similar but also pretty different from each other, and that's what I wanted to get into. And that that maybe seems like a funny thing to talk about while Donald Trump is president and Republicans control the Congress and most of the states. But for people who are paying attention to this, especially, you know, our sort of more activist, progressive listeners, um, this the conversation about this has been getting louder and louder. Uh, You know, I think it's safe to say that the Bernie Sanders campaign last year uh, had a lot to do with sort of publicizing this and gathering support for it and making people feel like if they fought for single payer, it was something they could actually achieve, despite what, say, Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton might have said about it in the past. Um, I also want to say for those listening uh, that I was inspired to bring this topic up by a couple of things I've read recently that I recommend to you if you're interested in this topic. The first is an article by Joshua Holland in The Nation. Uh, entitled, Medicare for All Isn't the Solution for Universal Healthcare. Um, I don't want to speak for the author, but I think that that headline actually does not capture how nuanced and interesting an exploration this is of the distance between, if you will, slogans about single-payer and actually devising a workable policy that could at some point theoretically be put in place in the United States. Uh, Shortly after that, uh, there was a similar piece in The New Republic by Cleo Chang called, Where Are the Single-Payer Wonks? Kind of on the same theme, um, and uh, again, I, I, I think anybody who is interested in these subjects should read these uh, and, and try and figure out whether you can answer the questions that uh, those authors say are not answered yet. What I've done to do better than that is bring in someone who knows what she's talking about when it comes to the American healthcare system, um, in Sarah Collins. So I want to start out with this. Um, just in a very fundamental way, you know, especially for anybody who really doesn't really know that much about this. When people say single payer or Medicare for all or socialized medicine, fundamentally, what are they talking about and how does it differ from the way we provide health care coverage and you know, actual medical care here in the United States?
5: Well, there are really a lot of different approaches to single payer, so-called single payer systems internationally. Um, you take the UK, for example, who has a public, which has a publicly financed health care system where you have health insurance coverage by virtue of just being a re- resident of the, of the country. Um, other countries, um, like the Netherlands, for example, have taken, have national health insurance systems, um, where they actually use a private health insurance Four private health insurers actually compete in the Netherlands, but it's publicly, also publicly financed. Um, people pay community-rated premiums. Um, those premiums and other contributions are dispersed back to the insurer in a risk-adjusted way. So there are a lot of very different approaches to single-payer systems. But I think one thing that one salient aspect of them is that they are very, characterized by very broad risk pools. So everybody, in, in, particularly in the case of the UK, is in the same health insurance pool. Um, so it's much easier to manage um, people's risks. Where you compare the United States, where 150 million people are an employer-based system, about 75 million people in Medicaid, 40 million people in Medicare, about 20 million people or so in the individual insurance market. So we have very fragmented risk pools um, in the United States relative to single more more more. Traditional single payer systems, which have everybody in the same pool,
2: and, and this this is this is one of the main reasons, or, or a main reason, I should say, why you see these uh, big uh, premium increases in the individual market for health insurance. You know. This and this goes back to before the Affordable Care Act for different sets of reasons. But if you're buying it on your own, or you work for a really small company, the number of people in your risk pool is quite small, and a few sick people can throw the whole pricing scheme out of whack. Whereas if you spread it across the entire population of a nation, you know you're essentially paying the same thing every year of your life. So when you're younger, uh, you're not getting your money's worth, so to speak. But when you are older, or if you ever get injured or sick, you know it sort of comes back to you and 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 again, I mean, that the universality of it means that everybody has it. Um, and you know, when you talk about the, the the differences between different countries, like another like a, a one thing that, that you didn't even uh, mention about the UK is that it's not just you know universal uh, healthcare uh, insurance, but. The doctors, the hospitals, they all – the hospitals are owned by the government and the doctors are employees of the government. So the entire system is self-contained whereas in a lot of other countries like Germany or the Netherlands, uh, Singapore, there is a private health insurance aspect to it superficially similar to the way the Affordable Care Act exchanges work, where there's a mandate of some kind in some of those countries that you have to buy something, there's subsidization, everybody's in the pool, and the government takes the money that it it, uh, collects from taxes, and as you said, in some cases, premiums, and then passes that along to the insurance companies, too. Um, And I think the underlying underlying thing, the most important thing here is the variation, especially in the context of if we were to do something like that in the United States, We have a lot of options to choose from, a lot of models to follow. Um, Well, actually, moving on from from that, um, another sort of very basic question. When you compare a a universal healthcare system in its various forms from around the world to the way we do things right now, um, what are some of the biggest relative advantages? And this may seem like an obvious question, but I want to hit this point. Relative advantages to doing it the way that the rest of the rich world does it compared to how we do and what are some of the disadvantages and i bring that up because you know not to sort of scream about rationing and you know death panels and all that stuff but no system is perfect healthcare is expensive and the people and the governments in all of these other countries are constantly struggling with their own healthcare systems just for different reasons than we are
5: that's right. And I, I think just in terms of the advantages of everybody being in the same pool, you raise the issue of physicians um, and how physicians are paid differently in, in countries uh, unlike the United States that are organized uh, much differently. So, so in, um, physicians in the, in the UK, for example, will negotiate um, through, their, through their medical um, association directly with the National Health, Health Service. Um, we see the same kind of um, negotiation going on in the Netherlands um, with, with the health insurance with the health insurance funds. In in Germany, for example, their sickness funds, the health uh, physicians um, negotiate their, their rates through large large groups. So there's there is a way there is a much larger pool of physicians negotiating with with, with a smaller number of, of of entities on the other side. So in that way countries that have universal healthcare systems end up having lower um, lower physician prices. Um, so if the United States were to move to that kind of system, it is very likely that physicians would probably be paid be paid less. Um, and that would be a major adjustment um, for physicians in, in the United States. The same is true for pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. So it offers an opportunity for national negotiation of prescription drug prices in other countries that we just don't really have in the United States.
2: And, there's, an, and there's another well, sorry, I was going to talk about one of the other disadvantages, but before, before potential disadvantages, I should say. Um, but, you know, I mean, of course, if everyone's covered by a single system, even if there are private insurers carrying out parts of it, it means that everyone is covered. And so from sort of cradle to grave, if you become sick or ill, you don't have to worry about losing your house. I mean, am I oversimplifying it?
5: No, I think it. I think, and I really think it presents opportunities that we don't have in the United States. So it presents much greater opportunities for system-wide changes in the way we organize healthcare. Um, that in the United States we have so many people in different kinds of insurance systems that we have very fragmented ways of organizing our, our systems, and we have very highly variable costs across the country. That's very they're very hard to get under control. So if everybody is in the same system, you have much greater leverage um, over different parts of the healthcare system. To enforce higher quality, um, for example, outcome-related um, payment systems, um, that those kinds of approaches, so that really does present an opportunity that we don't have in the United States.
2: And one of the things that uh, that you, you'll hear from uh, Republicans in this country, or or, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't just say that anybody who's just kind of skeptical about the idea of sort of putting the government in charge of the health care system, even if it's just on the insurance side, is they hear stories about, oh, well, you have to wait in line in Canada or the UK to get what. You need um, my very general understanding is that that's that that's often the case with elective uh, procedures. Um, or uh, you know drugs or or other kinds of therapies where maybe the evidence isn't there yet that it works or works better than what people are already doing that's less expensive and so those kinds of trade-offs occur but that if you have an acute need or a chronic health care uh, issue um, that that's not really an issue I mean, am I oversimplifying I think that
5: that's, I think that's exactly right and you even see see some gradation in how much people pay um, 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 for prescription drugs for example there are there are co-pays in certain in certain countries for prescription drugs, and they're and they're on a scale of, of very important to less important. So people pay more for for drugs that are less less important. But we, we've also what you also see in um, in the UK um, in in Canada as well the development of more of privately a private insurance too. So some people do um, supplement their coverage with private private insurance. So in most most countries, France for example, too there is there are voluntary health insurance systems where people are actually buying some private private coverage um, um, for certain services that may not be well covered by um, by the public um, insurance system. In Canada, for example, um, people have kind of medigap type policies. Yeah, I was um, just gonna say so, yeah. it sounds
2: like supplemental Medicare exactly. insurance. Yeah.
5: yeah. And it's and it's interesting in Canada it's mostly funded through by employers. So it's mostly paid for by, by employers. So people get Medigap coverage, but it's funded by their by mostly funded by their employers.
2: It just goes to show how complex all of this is for you know, everyone in any rich country in the world, you know, that there are different sort of different ways of getting to a similar result. And, and on that note, the last thing I wanted to ask about is, you know, as you said, we have this very fragmented system now, not just in the, where the sources of coverage, Medicare, Medicaid, job based insurance, you know, etc. Um, and, and in where we get care, you know, where we actually get treated or pick up our medicines. Um, but we but so anyway, we have what we have. If we were to look forward to some theoretical future date where we had some form of universal, you know, government guaranteed and sponsored health coverage, what would it take on a practical level to actually get there? You know, I mean – do you have to dismantle a lot of what already exists or do you layer something new on top of it? I'm sure there's different options, but you know, one of the big takeaways I had from those articles I mentioned earlier is that a lot of folks, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to this argument, a lot of folks who are really enthusiastic about the concept of skipping right over Obamacare and just doing what the rest of the world has done is that I feel as though a lot of people aren't reckoning with the practical aspects of it, which is not to say that it's wrong to attempt to do it, Right. It's just you have to figure out how. So, I mean, I don't know if there's any way to do this succinctly, but, you know, what would that actually look like in practice? If, they, you know, if, if Congress passed Bernie Sanders or John Conyers bill tomorrow and the president signed it, you know, what will we see in the meantime? How long would that take?
5: That's a great question, and you know these kinds of proposals have been around the United States for many, many years. The Commonwealth Fund, for example, in 2007 evaluated or analyzed um, the effects of Congressman Pete Stark's um, Medicare, AmeriCare, or Medicare for All um, bill um, with the Lewin Group, and and the big the big issue um, in that proposal was how how people in employer based coverage about 150 million people in employer based coverage would would tra- transfer into this new into this new system. So one one idea that they can Came up with was to keep the employer contribution of about eighty percent, um, and and either allow people allow employers to continue offering it, or pay their share into the into a new uh, Medicare trust fund, um, for um, for example, um, and but but I think that is it really does get at a major issue. You're talking about a major trans, um, transfer of people from an existing source of insurance coverage, namely employer based coverage, into a brand new system, and and we've we've seen that experience of the Affordable Care Act has, has shown how, how, how tightly people um, get used to, how much people get used to their own, their own coverage. And it would be very culturally very challenging for for that kind of transition to take, to take place.
2: I thought about the same thing in the exact same context in that, you know, there were, I don't know, a couple million people maybe in 2013 who were told, we're not renewing your insurance policy because it doesn't hear the Affordable Care Act. And there was a nationwide freakout and people are still talking about it. But we're talking about taking 170 million people on insurance, on on workplace insurance, 140 million people on Medicare and Medicaid, and moving everybody into something new. And I mean, I think that even if you could absolutely guarantee people, this is going to be better. um, You know, and I think that there's there there as we were discussing earlier, there are some obvious you know advantages to doing it that way. I think that maybe some people are underestimating how skeptical and, uh, and angry a lot of people would get about it, even if it's not over the ideology, just about the, the transition. And I, for one, would be really interested to see as the sort of progressive movement inside the Democratic Party puts more pressure on the DNC and on leaders in Congress to embrace single payer, how quickly the policy sort of guts of this uh, catches up with the enthusiasm um, and I think, I think we need to close with, with that and Sarah Collins I want to thank you very much for coming in I'm fascinated by this and I'm sure we'll be talking about it for quite a long time um, this is So That Happened and we will be right back
4: And we're back. I'm Sam Levine. I'm here in New York with my colleague Jeffrey Young, and we're joined today by Justin Levitt, who's a former deputy assistant attorney general in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Uh, He's now a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Justin, thanks for joining us. Of course. Glad to be with you. So I wanted to talk a little bit today about a reversal from the DOJ in one of their policies having to do with uh, purging voters from the rolls. It was something that Justin flagged yesterday and is a pretty noticeable change. It's uh, The department is changing positions, a position it's had uh, for over two decades and it comes right before the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear a case out of Ohio dealing with uh, voter purging. So, Justin, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on here?
6: Sure. And it's not just a change in policy. It's it's actually a change in what the department says the law says. Um, and that's significant. It's it's like watching your own lawyer change sides in a case. Um, and that's a little alarming. So, um, one caveat, I, I was involved in this uh, in the previous iteration and and had a hand in um, writing some of the briefs that happened before, so I don't want to pretend that I've got no dog in this fight, Um, but essentially what happened is there's a federal law that regulates voter registration, and it says states have the responsibility to clean the voter rolls, but only in certain ways. Uh, It's a lot of balance in making sure that ineligible people are cleaned off but only ineligible people, and it's got some protections to make sure that eligible people aren't swept out as well. In particular, the federal law regulates when people can be purged off the rolls because of a move, because they've moved. We said, the Department of Justice said, up until uh, two days ago, that this federal law prohibited states from purging you because of a move if there wasn't evidence that you'd actually moved, if the only thing the state was relying on is the fact that you haven't voted for a little while and you haven't answered one mailing. Now, the Department of Justice says, uh, as of a filing yesterday, that states can purge you from the voter rolls ostensibly because you've moved if the only evidence is you haven't voted for a little while, and you haven't answered one mailing. And that's controversial policy. It's controversial for the substance of interpreting the law. But it's also a pretty controversial change for the DOJ to switch sides in the middle of a case.
4: Yeah. And tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, I think a lot of people would look at this and just say, yeah, Trump DOJ switches sides from the Obama DOJ. Like, why is this so unusual? Why is this such a big deal?
6: It it happens, so it's not unprecedented, but for the DOJ to switch sides in the middle of the case is a big deal in part because it's the job of the Department of Justice to to say what it thinks the best view of the law is. So it's a law enforcement entity, and particularly when it's interpreting statutes that it enforces the Justice Department says, hey, here's how we've been enforcing the statute, and that's because we read the statute to require X and Y and to permit X and Y. And when administrations change, you expect that certain policies change. Um, So, for example, uh, Attorney General Sessions has put in um, controversial and, uh, and, and significant changes on the way prosecutors bring cases, the way they charge cases. And that's a policy decision. I disagree with it. But that's, that's sort of the normal course of what you expect when the administration changes. Um, the attorney general has put in place limits on how the Department of Justice conducts settlements and when it will settle a case and on what terms. And that, too, that's a policy change. I disagree with it. Um, but I understand that that's something the attorney general gets to decide. It's a little bit different when the department of justice says, this is what a statute means. And it's consistent with the way that we've enforced the law over time. And then comes back just a few months later and says, yeah, you know what? We think the statute means something else. There's a thumb on the scale to try and keep as consistent as possible. And where there's a change in the facts or a change in the law, Of course, you see the Department of Justice shift, but it's rarer to see the Department of Justice change sides when there's been no intervening change in the facts of the law, when it's just a different idea about what the law requires.
4: Yeah, and and this morning I talked to a lawyer for the plaintiffs in this case who are now going up against the position that the Department of Justice is arguing for, who said the department has essentially undermined its own credibility. It's gone against the position that it's held for a long time now. Um, And I wanted to talk a little bit about something else that you had flagged in a blog post you wrote. You said that uh, if you look at the actual brief, career uh, civil rights attorneys from the department hadn't... Uh, sign this brief. It was only political appointees. What does that mean, and why is that important?
6: Yeah, it's 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 the normal lineup from the Solicitor General's office, including some career folks at the Solicitor General's office. But the only participation from the Civil Rights Division, from the substantive enforcement arm of the Department of Justice, is from the political appointee who's now running the division. Normally, you would see career lawyers at the Department of Justice signing on to and helping write. Uh, briefs that explain the position of the Department of Justice in the Courts of Appeals, and the Supreme Court, all the way through. And that's true even when the career lawyers might substantively prefer another outcome or where they disagree, um, it's, it's common practice for the career civil rights attorneys to participate because they're the ones who have sort of the longstanding um, process of enforcing the law at heart. That's, that's what they do day in and day out. And so you can look, even in this administration, you can look at a lot of briefs that have been filed, including briefs including the Civil Rights Division, at the Supreme Court, and you'll see both political and career appointees from both the Solicitor General's Office and the Civil Rights Division. The attorneys are professionals, so sometimes they know they're going to write things they might not in their heart of hearts uh, agree with. But as long as there's no serious process concern, they'll sign on to a brief like that.
2: Uh, This is Jeffrey. I'm sorry. I I just I I wondered if I could ask you a couple of things just for for people like myself who have not been following this this particular thing uh, very closely. Um, and, And the first is how in what ways does 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 the just the justice department's shift in position on this reflect the current administration's sort of other accusations insinuations and activities around the prevalence supposedly of voter fraud um, and also if this case now goes Goes, you know, If the Justice Department and, I guess, the state of Ohio get their way here now, and these roles are allowed to be purged, what are the practical effects? I understand those are two very different questions. They're just they're two things that I personally am not super clear on. I think that may be true of some of the people listening as well.
6: Yep. So let me start with the last bit and then, and then come back to your earlier question. What's, what's sort of the practical effect of this? Um, there are only a few states that say they're going to purge you for moving without evidence that you've moved which is essentially what Ohio is asking for permission to do, um, what Ohio has done and what the Supreme Court is, is going to uh, figure out whether it's got the permission to do. Um, most states say that they have to have some evidence that you've moved before they'll purge you for moving. Uh, that can include uh, something with the, filing something with the post office for a change of address. That can include sending mail that's undeliverable so the post office shows up at your door and can't deliver it to you. Um, it can include a bunch of other things, but there's some indication that you might have moved, and so therefore you're not eligible to vote where you were registered. What Ohio is doing is saying that it's going to purge you from moving when there's no evidence that you've moved. You just haven't shown up to vote in a little while, and you didn't respond to one mailing. And we know that in 2016, thousands of Ohio voters were able to vote specifically because the courts weighed in and stopped this Ohio purge from happening. And so what's at stake here is really whether Ohio is going to clean up the rolls in a a precise way or whether it's going to continue cleaning up the rolls in a sloppy way, um, throwing thousands of eligible people off the rolls. The way that the Justice Department has gone about maintaining its law enforcement perspective is very different from... um, the way that other parts of the administration have indicated a concern about voter fraud. Uh, so the the primary example of this is the pence Commission, this advisory body. It is not a law enforcement entity in any way, shape or form. Um, it is highly controversial for a lot of very good reasons. Uh, it seems to be running forward and screaming about widespread voter fraud in in an attempt to encourage states and the federal government to change their rules. And some of that relates to this one federal law, um, the National Voter Registration Act, the thing that's at stake in Ohio. But the Department of Justice has been far more um, matter of fact and has been far more restrained in enforcing the law in this area so far. And I think... Even as shocking as the switch in positions has been, that's still consistent with what we've seen out of the Department of Justice in this case. So it is worrisome that they would have adopted a different perspective. Um, It's worrisome that they would have shifted positions in this same case. That's very unusual. Um, But it's still an attempt to enforce the law as they see it, and that's different than I think all the indications we've gotten from things like the pence Kovac Commission, which is, is really aimed at changing the law in ways that are fundamentally far more dangerous.
4: Justin, super interesting discussion. We're out of time here, but thank you for joining us. Of course. And we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Thanks to Nick Offenberg, our producer in New York, for helping out this week. I'm Sam Levine.
2: And I'm Jeffrey Young.
4: And thanks to our guests, Sarah Collins, Justin Levitt, and our boss, Lydia Paul Green. And thanks to the D.C. Bureau for letting us take up the reins this episode.
2: So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of PuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe, leave a rating, and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about... Send an email to so that happened at huffpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already.